Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 7th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. So today we're talking about the origin of the universe. Is it finite, infinite, made of turtles? Quite possibly, it's a little bit of all of the above. Today, we're listening in on a discussion from the Rubin Museum of Art's Brainwave Festival, where two extraordinary women were paired to talk about the universe, where it comes from, and where it ends. Lori Anderson became the first and only artist-in-residence at NASA in 2003. Jana Levin is the author of How the Universe Got Its Spots and professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College. Coming up, we play their discussion. And yes, they do talk about turtles. Made a big mistake in not reading this until a couple of started a couple of days ago. <laughs> so, uh, it's a fantastic book, and I have a million questions. Each one of these little folded down things is a question. So, many of them have three folded down things on each page, so it's two hundred sixteen pages. So I have about over six hundred questions to ask you. Okay, good. I hope and you're not hungry or tired or <laughs> thirsty or anything. The whole premise of a finite universe. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could just start yeah. with, because when you make a model for where you are uh, or when you are or whatever, of course you're using a lot of math, but mm-hmm. are you also using some way that you, th- some hunch that you thought maybe it wouldn't be sure. infinite? And what do, what do yeah, I so, so the premise, the scientific premise of the book is, is that the universe might not be infinite. You know, Einstein had this famous quote, he said, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And then he's like, and I'm not so sure about the universe. Um, and he realized that, that it's not impossible the universe was finite. I mean, once you go and start talking about relativity of space and time, I mean, anything's possible. So it was always planted, people had talked about it, but to some extent the mathematics didn't exist until even the 70s and much later. And, and we sort of started to rethink about the topic. And by we, I just mean, you know, a group of random people happened to kind of start thinking about it similarly. Maybe the universe really is random, finite. Random people? <laughs> well, we all knew each other. Okay, so it wasn't totally random. But, you know, even now, I, I don't know that the universe is finite. And I would be God. cautious to say I believe it's finite. I wouldn't even say that. Mm-hmm. I would oh, just would. say that I believe it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. It's a realistic possibility mm-hmm. that, that we have to lay out on the table of possibilities. The universe was born, it was created. Maybe it came out finite, like all of its progeny, as opposed to trying to imagine that it was somehow instantaneously infinite. So your own finite life gave you that feeling? or Yeah, I mean, we... As infinity a creature, actually, stardust <laughs> creature, or what? Sure, you know, we're, we're, we're these finite things made up of a very specific history. You make reference to stardust, but, you know, it's really true. We're made up of stuff from stars. You know, we're a very specific place in time and in space, you know. And uh, we couldn't be here 10 billion years ago. And we probably can't be here 10 billion years from now especially since we're going to collide with Andromeda. There's a great picture of Andromeda in the exhibit, oh. actually. You didn't we're going to collide with Andromeda. Sorry about that. When is that? Uh, I don't know. I think it's like a few billion years. <laughs> a few billion years. Mm-hmm. But a friend of mine called me and was like, I'm so disappointed that you think the universe, you know, as though I had committed a moral sin, you know. How can you think the universe is finite? It's like, I don't want it to be finite. I don't even like it. It's just, it might be, you know. I have to face the harsh reality of it. 
Well, I mean, do you find that theories can have a morality to them? In some sense, no, and I think that's what's appealing, that, that it's, it's, it's harsh and cold-blooded in that way. That well, facts are, but are theories? Yeah. Facts are pretty cold-blooded. Yeah. <laughs> theories, to me, always have some, some warmth in them, you know? Like, yeah. like I, I, it could be that way, because I feel it could. Well, I think... You give it life by giving it, it the possibility, so you're giving it something warm, mm -hmm. you know? You, you you can speak to this too when you're when you're theorizing or, or narrating about something you're or collecting information your your passage that was just read about the stars we know facts about the stars but you are the one who cast it that way you know you saw it and cast it in that narrative and that makes it a whole other thing so there's there's a truth to that that why is this interesting and why is this meaningful and why do we even want to ask questions about the origin of the universe or where we came from or you okay know, so let's say it's not moral us. but would it be aesthetic somewhat yeah for sure there yeah. are for sure aesthetics and I think it's the last place you can talk with a straight face about things being beautiful right I mean isn't the art world really quite critical of the notion of things being beautiful <laughs> no, 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 I know a lot of artists who love beauty <laughs> and who try to make beautiful things that inspire people. But we are talking about the New York art world, so you're yes, right. You know. you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But I, one thing that, um, one of the very few uh, sort of fun experiences that I had at, at NASA mm -hmm. being this artist in residence as, as Tim very nicely put it the first one but I was I really mm -hmm. it was also the last one. <laughs> I can imagine the implications of that you know I was like not doing that again um, which I think they asked me to do this because it would be some sort of I'd make some sort of sexy techno multimedia whatever you know bounce satellite from one satellite onto another onto another onto the dark side of the moon so when I told them I was going to write like a long poem they were like <laughs> Why? Why would you do something like that? But some of the great conversations mm -hmm. I had there were, and I, I want to bring this up because you're in love with Einstein. Mm. You're always quoting. You're yeah. like, it's so wonderful. Um, I try to curb it. Actually, I catch myself <laughs> and say, just don't say his name. <laughs> um, so one of the things that these nanotechnologists kept repeating, which was mm -hmm. really odd, was they said well, that, that Einstein had rejected some of his major theories because he said they weren't beautiful. Mm. And I thought, what's he looking for then? I mean, and what, what does he think is beautiful? Mm -hmm. Symmetry mm -hmm. or what kind, is, is this a Western type of beauty? Is it a mathematical, pure, mm -hmm. pure beauty? Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Thing that he, with that aspect of his aesthetic choices? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Einstein thought very simply, which is, also why he's so compelling. Because, uh, it, you know, mathematically, obviously, it's very sophisticated, but that wasn't where he started with the ideas. He started with very simple thought experiments, just imagining being in the woods, looking at the light falling from the trees, being on a light beam, just what would he see? And he thought of it in a very childlike way. It gives you this, this, this hope that maybe we can all do that, you know? <laughs> that just thinking simply and, and uh, innocently. Mm -hmm. and, and what was beautiful about Einstein, which, which really was special, is that he wasn't burdened by the authorities mm -hmm. of the time. And mm -hmm. he knew what was popular opinion. And, and Newton, for Christ's sake, you know, Isaac Newton said the universe was a certain way. There was nothing that indicated Newton was wrong in any way, or Newtonian thinking was wrong in any way. There was really no evidence for it. And still, he chips away at it, because something mm -hmm. bothers him mm -hmm. inside. And you know, you're talking about it is, it's very intuitive. It was almost palpable. Something subtle wasn't right about the nature of time, the nature of light. Very simple things. Very right. simple in things. In the way of, like, just didn't, 
hit him right. But it was so. it had it was very simple. His idea was 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 one of symmetry and beauty. You know, the it was a very simple, almost a simple idea. Two astronauts float past each other in space. How do you tell which one's moving? And he thought about this, and Galileo even thought about this. But he thought about this at he 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 upped it a level. There's no way. No way either of you can tell which one's moving. In fact, you don't feel like you're moving at all. Until that astronaut floats by you, now it's you. Okay, it was two astronauts, now it's you and an astronaut. Before that astronaut floated by you, you wouldn't have known you were moving. There would have right. been no meaning to your motion. And the other one's going to look at you and say, anyway, so he goes, he chips and he chips, he thinks about light in that context, and he says, you know, this is so important that I'm going to give up on space and time being absolute. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge leap to make. So, yeah, he definitely thought about symmetry, elegance, and, and deep and very simple principles. I, I love that you quoted him because, uh, as his own opinion of his childhood, which you were saying is he had this childlike mm -hmm. kind of innocence and curiosity, and mm -hmm. uh, that he, he was kind of a deadbeat as a student. And he said, well, his, in his own words, I was no Einstein. Yeah, I, so, love um, I love that you quoted <laughs> that brilliant. in the book. But also, you know, when, when you say symmetry, um, it yeah. seems to me such a cultural thing. Because if you take that idea to Japan, in Japanese aesthetics, let's say, mm -hmm. ja you know, uh, symmetry is considered idiotic. It's, it's, you know, what, they're going, why do you Westerners like things that rhyme? Mm -hmm. You know, you have this column and that column. They look just alike. Why? Because you have a bicameral brain, two legs, a bunch of two hands. Is that what you like about it? Because it looks like you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so beautiful. But, you know, I mean, um, what, if he, what if Einstein was Japanese? Would it, mm -hmm. would it be more like a, their idea of two things, how two mm -hmm. things can relate, something really big mm -hmm. and really small, or some perhaps... Different, different way that they might affect each other mm -hmm. rather than just sitting there inertly rhyming. Mm -hmm. So do you think that his, uh, his aesthetic was slanted what he could see? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say two completely contradictory things. We talked earlier, and I said one of the things that is so appealing to me about, about science when I was a philosophy student in college and, and what... what kicked me over to the other side of science. And I thought physicists memorized equations and built bombs and were, you know, uptight and rigid men with coats. And, um, men, yeah. I so like men, don't get, you know, it's like word, but, word, yeah. I even like uptight men, but, but, um, <laughs> Good question about but that later. there's something about science that what switched it for me was that it it was absolutely transcendent in the sense it did not matter who you were, where you came from, what language you spoke, what century you were walking around in, that one plus one was going to be two. There was something about that that seemed to speak not just to the structure of our minds. It was My thinking was that it reflected something outside of us, that our minds were shaped by this external thing called mathematics, and it's still a great mystery. The mathematics seems to guide the, the running of the world. It's incredible. And what I loved about it is, you know, Ramanujan coming out of that small town in Madras, like we were talking about, just out of nowhere, reinventing calculus, reinventing mathematics. And the reason why they accepted him to Cambridge, he was one of the great mathematicians of the last century, was because one, you know, they were reading his essays, and it was like, yeah, he's, you know, he's saying all this true stuff about mathematics. You know? But somebody's like, do you think he had books on this, and it suddenly dawned on somebody that 
he didn't have access to any of the written material about this mathematics. He had it reinvented it all. So um, he it's comes astounding. to Cambridge. It's astounding. It's absolutely astounding. So it speaks to something that, that seems to connect us in a very deep way. So in some sense, I would say it doesn't matter where you're from. Okay. Now, I'm going to completely contradict myself by saying, but surely, yes, we all bring things to the table. And there are people who are the ones who make those great discoveries and have thought about things in a totally different way from anybody else. And they're bringing with them everything they have. And maybe part of that's their cultural notions of beauty. And, and maybe part of that's just some strange artifact of their childhood. But they bring all that machinery when they make that creative leap and they look at something in that totally new way. Well, especially when you're trying to describe space as you are, mm -hmm. or I mean, just trying to find a, a model for, yeah. for things. Um, I'm just thinking of, of just another cultural way to look at, uh, let's say, let's call it space for a second, or just a room, or mm -hmm. a person in a room, like mm -hmm. uh, conceptualizing whether it's the Earth in the universe or whether. In working a lot in Japan, I re really just found a lot of different grammatical models, for example, uh, which made me realize I came from an, the other side of the world, which was the side mm -hmm. of the world, the Greek side of the world, where we have their tradition of ego, hero, the, the center of this, this kind of your own cosmos, mm -hmm. when we would be having a, like a, an argument in mm -hmm. Tokyo about some project that we were working on, mm -hmm. um, they would never say Dave is angry or Kira is angry. They would say there was anger in this room. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting way to describe forces and people and space, you know, and that it was much more a, a way that, I understood! <laughs> because it's, it, it, fl it comes around, it moves, it's, it's something that moves through you. You're not, you are not angry yourself. You're not anger yourself. It moves through you like a wind, like it, mm -hmm. like, oh, the, the, I don't know the name of this Balzac story, oh, book, I can't remember, but it starts out with a beautiful image of a, a breeze that comes through town, and it's kind of a, like a malevolent breeze, but it, it comes through the butcher shop, and then it sneaks under the door of mm -hmm. her house, and then it goes through, passing through someone swirling around his head, and all the ways that connect people that are very different ways of conceiving person in space that, that we have as, mm -hmm. as Westerners. So, And I can imagine you're, you're feeling both ways about these laws that are impervious and the other mm -hmm. ones that are cultural, then you kind of say, well, they're both true and you're not sure. Because mm -hmm. it is, I think we feel tugged mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways. Don't you, do you feel like that when you're, when you're composing or you're writing um, that there's a dual play of bringing what you have to bring and also touching something universal? I mean, isn't, do you, do you feel that at all as a kind I'm, of dual? I'm a miniaturist, and I don't go for universal stuff. Mm -hmm. I go for, like, details. Mm -hmm. And I love just little tiny details mm -hmm. of, of things. And, and I, I hope they mean something to other people. But big words are, are things I try to, to um, sneak around rather mm -hmm. than, you know, mm -hmm. use them. They're abstractions, so I like to see w what they are. I mean, the word free, I mean, back to this free thing, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just that... The word free is, is so baffling. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it means sort of absence also. You know, like this dog is free of fleas. <laughs> you know, what does it mean? Uh, free, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we're going to get to that when we sell free will. So right. <laughs> um, can I ask you something? Uh, I have, I'm only on question one of the <laughs> 600 questions. Your book is so beautifully woven between you. your personal life and your theories. Mm. And you have this like love story with um, Warren, who is this kind of very distracted, strange musician, <laughs> yeah. and and he comes and goes, and it's uh, and it's very touching the way um, your relationship is part of as you build your worldview. So, mm -hmm. and then uh, of course friends are asking at the end of the book. So, does it really change your life when you? How do you apply that? Then now that you know that the you know, or that you mm -hmm. speculate that the, that it's finite, mm -hmm. does it change your life? But one other thing I liked about Warren, and then it turns out she married Warren. Yeah, I know. We were sitting with the mics on, I was like, I'm gonna tell you the secret. Uh -huh. <laughs> I married Warren, yeah. Um, a guy who is so lost, you know, in the book he's pictured as so lost. And, and I was like, like, so shocked when he said, we're married, we have two kids. I said, like, you did. So, this, is a, this is a real shocker in his book. She married Warren, who, who they said that, uh, they said that he's sitting right over there. No, I'm just kidding. He's sitting yeah, <laughs> you said that you were going to tell your parents that he was a magician, so that when you told them that he was a ma musician, it wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> <laughs> this book is really funny. She's really, really funny. It's so wonderful. It's really I think they kind of wished he was a magician. <laughs> he's a luthier, right? He's a luthier. Yeah, he's a luthier. So he builds instruments. Yeah. Do I so, have to but, talk about Warren right now? No, but just, no, but just the concept. Why did you Why did you bring your personal life into uh, into this book? Not that I, I don't love it. I do love that, that it's, it's, it's so touching that you did that. But why did you decide to do that? Because it's really an unusual choice. Yeah, it was... Um, at the time that I wrote the book, I was pretty recently out of graduate school, and I was not a professor, and so I was not in this position of, you know, the great scientist coming down from the mountain with the tablet, you know, dusting, re recollecting of my great achievements. It wasn't that kind of a book, and, and um, I wanted to strike a tone that was very natural and personal, and, 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 and it just sort of ended up kind of coming out that way as a, you know, part um, letter writing kind of exercise and part story of the research. And I think also in particular for that research, it made sense because I knew that it might be the case that the universe was infinite. And all this research I had been doing on, on the possibility, right, was like, that's <laughs> it, you know. Oh, oops, the data comes back. It's infinite and it's over, you know. Um, and, um, and I just felt these are beautiful ideas. These are huge ideas and they shouldn't just die because they're wrong, you know, like, shouldn't be a black mark on them forever. And there was part of me that thought, well, what's the way to tell a story about ideas that may or may not be true or right? And, and the way to tell a story is, is through the process of, you know, doing the research. And the truth about doing the research is that it's alienating, you know, you're alienated from your normal life, you're alienated from other people to a large extent. And, and so I, I wanted to kind of tell that, that aspect of it. I what's guess. your favorite wrong science? My favorite wrong yeah, science? Yeah. <clears throat> like that you still find poetically moving, but it's like wrongity wrong. Oh, that's actually a tough <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a tough question. You know, there were, there were a lot of uh, very technical ideas, so I don't know if they'll sound that exciting, but there was something once called Technicolor, a suggestion about subatomic particles. It was just so beautiful. Technicolor had to be right, but it turns out it's wrong. It's just wrong. It doesn't work. Um, lots of things like that. You know, Einstein introduced something into his theory to stop the universe from expanding famously, and he was wrong. 
But actually, that's come back again. So, <laughs> because, but you know, it, it's something that now we think looks like dark energy. But it was so interesting that in a way it couldn't go away. He wasn't, it wasn't right of him to try. He tried to stop the universe from expanding, and, and that was wrong. The universe is, in fact, expanding. But that little thing he did kind of sat around for a long time. And it turns out that we see something kind of like that today in the form of dark energy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so often ideas, you know, they might be wrong in the setting in which they were applied, but they're mathematically correct. They'll probably crop up somewhere. And how the universe got spots is a reference to the fact that how the leopard got its spots has something to say about the same kinds of geometry, you know. It's just, just talk about that li a little bit, because that, yeah. that was so completely fascinating. Yeah, so, and this is due to Turing, which by coincidence is the character's name in, in, in my second book, Alan Turing, who's a great code breaker, a brilliant mathematician. Um, but he realized that um, something called the Turing mechanism, which is when animals form in vitro, or in utero, rather, in vitro, why not? It's New York. Uh, <laughs> So the so natural way. <laughs> so the, the shape of the developing embryo, the shape and size, and the connectedness of the developing embryo determines how the pattern of spots or stripes are set on the animal. Determines whether it has leopard spots or zebra stripes, and, and exactly where they're oriented in the shape and size. And, and there's something similar that we're talking about in the universe. The universe has a certain shape and size when it's born. It has a certain number of dimensions, a certain connectedness, and that's going to imprint little hot and cold spots in the sky left over from the Big Bang and, and leave a pattern of spots on the universe's coat, so to speak. So it's, it's a That's similar so mechanism. That's so chilling. That's just <laughs> such a... When I read that, I just couldn't... I, plus this... Um, can you talk a little bit about these turtles as well? Oh, my turtles. Oh, yeah. those turtles. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of tough. I can talk about the turtles. Because <laughs> I thought you were going to do, do that Hindu myth about the origin of yeah, the, uh, the, the world. What's the world on top of it? It's yeah. on top of a turtle. What, what's, on, what's that on top of? Well, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> you know, that famous Hindu little <laughs> nursery rhyme. But this, um, I have to say, I, I, I have to read this probably 10 more times to, e to even get the, the gist of what you're saying, but I, I'm really looking forward to that. But could you, could I can you try sort the of... Turtles. Yeah, I can try yeah. the turtles. Okay, so the idea is that if you live in a finite universe, that even light is forced to wrap around the space. So if the universe is finite, you know, the Earth is finite, right? So you, you leave Spain in a boat and you go off sail to discover the new world and you find that you come back to where you started. You don't go on forever, and you don't fall off the edge of the earth. It's neither flat with an edge, nor is it infinite. It's, in fact, nice and finite and compact. You come back to where you started. And we're imagining the same thing for the universe. If you left in a rocket, if you go see that video that Tim was describing, um, you'll see moving off away from the earth, away from the Milky Way galaxy, you go off in a rocket. If the universe were truly finite, the Milky Way would approach in front of you again. You don't turn left, you don't turn right, you don't stop. You're just going straight, 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 and, and here it comes again, the Milky way because you've gone around the entire finite space and even light has to do that so that means that light from the Milky Way galaxy is leaving and if the universe is finite it's going to wrap around the universe and come back to us one day and one day we're going to look out and see light from that took a billion years to get to us because the journey was so long and it's going to be ourselves the Milky Way only it's going to be a billion years ago it's going to be very hard to recocognize that that was the Milky Way the turtles are in a very little universe. <laughs> the only thing, it's like a Borges story or something, the only thing in that universe is the turtle, and the light leaves the turtle's face, and it wraps around and hits him in the back, and the light from the back of his head leaves and wraps around, and he's looking at the back of his head, so everywhere he looks, he sees a copy of himself. It's like a hall of mirrors. He looks up, 
He sees copies of himself, he looks left, he looks right, and he sees those copies going on forever, and the further away they are, the longer it took the light to get to him, so the younger he was, you know? He can watch things happening to him, unfolding in the distance. He can wave, and all his copies will slowly wave at him, you know, each one further away, seeming to wave later. So that's the story with the turtle. Confusing. I, I, this is so pointless that what I'm going to say now, but it's just, it just reminded me of my favorite turtle story, which was a, a trick that Brian Eno played on his roommate, which he had um, a uh, who had turtles and was a real turtle lover. And each day he got he got thirty turtles, all different sizes, and he each day he would put another smaller turtle into the terrarium, and the guy was like, God. And then he'd go the other way. What did he do with the, the turtles? turtles. He, that was a whole, you know, you he have a lot of time in, in college to you know, do schemes like that. You have 30 different sized turtles. Um, also, when you talked about, um, see, it was really pointless. Um, Edwin Abbott is one of my yeah. favorite yeah. Uh, writers. Yeah. How many people have read Flatland? Flatland. Yeah. Edwin Abbott, Abbott. Yeah, yeah. This, this 1882 satire of... Yeah. Living in a flatland, yeah. All the characters are um, once are, are like polygons, simple-sided. And the higher up you are in society, the more sides you have. So, so our hero is like a middle-class square, and then there's like an octagon, and you know, and the priests have so many sides; they look like circles, right? And women. The, the women are just straight lines. Yeah, they're just and lines. They have no sides at all. <laughs> it was a satire. And they're da- <laughs> they're dangerous though. They're the only really dangerous ones, right? Yeah. If their husbands came home early, they got pierced from this because right. they couldn't see their wives. Ed John, right. <laughs> <laughs> mortally wounded. <laughs> there was Life a law that the land. women had to wag their tails so that yeah. they could be visible at all times. <laughs> right. right. But then you had some beautiful um, diagrams of a sphere, what it would be like if, if mm-hmm. let's say, we lived in a universe of 27 dimensions mm-hmm. and we just uh, were only aware of these three. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. If we were flatlanders, what would, mm-hmm. it, uh, would the results be? So you have mm-hmm. this sphere casting a two-dimensional shadow, right. and then the image of a lot of fragments of arms coming up around somehow? Yeah, yeah. If, right, I mean, they would only see the cross-section. Yeah, you'd so, always so just you'd see, only see the cross-section. Things. So as you pass through, you would just mm-hmm. be, you know, a knee, and then a cross-section, mm-hmm. and then, you know, a right. cross-section, right. and that's all that they could possibly perceive. But it raises questions about our own universe, because there might be extra dimensions. Yeah. So as we only perceive three, I mean, I don't have a language for extra dimensions other than mathematics. I can't point to it. I, you know, I can't see it, I can't describe it, but I know that at every point in space, if there's extra ones, they'd be right there at every single point in space, that extra direction. And, and if things were to cross through, things like strings might look like points, you know, and might look like particles to us, and really they were strings or something like that. So you're saying I mean, they wouldn't have to rely on memory or the stories of history to place themselves in context. They could use binoculars or telescopes to look back and watch history play itself out, which would be wonderful if you yeah. just like, <laughs> right. go back. And I think you used to, didn't you use the image of... Uh, JFK? Did you use that? Oh, yeah, you could go back and resolve the JFK story by looking far enough back in time in a finite universe with a good mm-hmm. enough telescope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the, the question about our own universe is, is more of one, why is it so big? You know, why is the universe so vast? And Compared to... Well, good question. Compared to what? <laughs> and you could say, well, compared to us, big deal, right? I mean, why should... It's vast to us. But, um, I don't know, there are big structures, maybe it doesn't seem so vast on bigger and bigger structures. You know, there are these ideas that the entire universe is like a giant 
computer program being executed. And I don't mean in the corny sci-fi sense, but I mean really like, like it's just executing rules and churning through, and in some sense, you know, uh, uh, it's it's unfolding towards some end. So it's almost like an organism. <laughs> and there there are That's questions. very dreary. <laughs> it is. It Way is. But there's <laughs> no. Or do you? Well, I think that there's interesting questions about, you know, when is when are you just part of? And you know, Mark Quinn, the artist Mark Quinn, I think talks says interesting things about this when he he did Bloodhead and he poured his cast his own blood in his head. And it, it's an interesting dialogue about when am I just a blood cell and when am I an entire being and when am I alive and when am I not alive? You know, when did that blood cease to be alive and why isn't it animated or animate and why am I? And you know, so there are questions about being part of a complex whole and being unaware of being part of that complex whole. But why wouldn't uh, awareness come into that as an answer? I mean, I, I, I don't, because you feel you are. Mm -hmm. That's an answer, no? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, in the same sense that like subsets of our brain feel aware, but maybe aren't totally aware. I don't know, maybe, you, do, you, do, you, do you feel like, don't you feel like there's parts of your own mind even that aren't completely accessible to you? Yes, there are. <laughs> so here you yeah. are being aware inside a bigger organism kind without of the, being fully it, in control of that whole organism. Well, but yeah, uh, of course, what fully means as well compared to what as well. But, you know, I do feel that I am able to use my own mind to look at it, which is a miracle. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's, and... Uh, so I, I don't feel like I, there, there are these, um, I, I know that there are things that are not very accessible, that I, mm -hmm. but I think that I could, um, I think that human beings will be able to mm -hmm. somehow, I, I, I think I have some idea of progress in, in well, that way, well, this is in a kind terms of, question, of awareness. This is the kind of question that I get asked, so I'm going to ask you. Okay. Do you feel that there are limitations to what we can really understand? Like people say, you can't ask questions about that because that is just outside of human scope. Human beings should not be asking questions about, you know, the origin of the universe or the fate of the universe, whatever. Do you think that there's anything like that? And it's going to cause harm to who if they yeah, do ask right. a question? Well, I mean, it's right. yeah. ridiculous, yeah. you know. Of course, you can, uh, and like you say, wrong answers are, can be beautiful and one we're never going to know anyway. And mm -hmm. does it really, mm -hmm. and, and um, aesthetically, frankly, the, this idea of, of finite to me mm -hmm. seems, uh, very lovely, mm -hmm. you know. It's, it's a very lovely idea to bend back, mm -hmm. and and then it it, it is where you know. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, uh, I uh, would we ever be able to understand that? Um, do you know the book Sum? Mm -hmm. It's a it's a, a book uh, called Forty Different Afterlives, mm -hmm. and Eagleman. And it's a lovely book mm -hmm. about I suppose time the way most just a lot of scenarios about what the afterlife. And one one of them the afterlife is. Um, you wake up and you're uh, you're surrounded by a bunch of small purple worms, who are your creators. That you realize your creators are small purple worms, mm -hmm. and they're screaming like, "What are we doing here? What's the answer? What are we about?" And you're like so shaken because you um, uh, you just died, you know, <laughs> and you're not used to. And they're but they're constantly screaming, "What the, what, are, what are we doing here?" And um, so you, you look around and you notice that a lot of them are crying. And you're kind of like, what? And you realize that they're crying because they think that we know the answers and that they are just too stupid to understand them. So that like, fills them with grief. Um, so anyway, uh, will we be able to understand everything? I'm an artist, so I think of myself as a kind of god. <laughs> 
I, she said that to me earlier, and I'm glad she said it yeah. out loud. <laughs> because, you know, we make something where there was nothing. There was nothing there before. And you make something. That's very godlike, you know, without being, you know, worshipping yourself, which would be... But it is, it, it is the power to uh, create uh, something that's... That's, that's, there it is. And, and you can actually then show it to another one of your purple, fellow purple worms, and they go, I know what you're talking about. So, you know, there is exchange, and those are things that um, I, I think, if we look at evolution, are becoming more and more s subtle and more and more um, difficult conversation about mm -hmm. this one second, because I was in doing an interview with John Cage, and I, there was a question that I really wanted to ask him, which mm -hmm. was about shape, I suppose, yeah. and basically the question was, uh, do you think th things are getting better or are they getting worse? But it was such a stupid question, you know, how are you going to ask somebody that? You know, it's just, so I tried to, <laughs> Didn't you ask? Okay. <laughs> I talked around it, you know, I was like, you know, chattering around it, like, um, well, you know, um, it, it's true that a, like a modern horse runs faster than a prehistoric horse, so maybe we're getting faster and smarter and better. Mm -hmm. and well, on the other hand, you know, um, there were maybe there were. Why didn't we evolve to be fire-breathing animals like mm -hmm. we were mytho mythologically? You know, it would be very handy to be able to cook your food. You know, <laughs> boom. You know, I didn't have to. So why didn't we go that? If everything's for the better and everything's getting faster and better and good, more good, and and I, and he's like. And I'm chattering on, and he's going, um, what are you trying to say? You know, <laughs> What are you asking me? And I said, well, okay, are, are things getting better, or are they getting worse? And um, he didn't really even hesitate. He just said, oh, and he, because he had this, uh, like, he, he always was, would smile like that, <laughs> with his mouth open, like, <laughs> Even when he was 80, when a lot of people are so depressed they want to blow their brains out, you know, <laughs> he was happy. You know, I was so touching. He was happy to be there, happy to be thinking. Mm -hmm. He said, "Oh, they're getting better," and I was like, "And I don't know why I was so happy to hear that, but you know, um, it gave me a lot of of uh, kind of confidence and somehow in the ability to. You're not going to know either way." So it's a really yeah, question well, of right. aesthetics. You know, do you want to be miserable or would you like to be happier? So, you know, um, so choose to be choose to be happy. You know, so anyway, um, or choose any of these models that you like yeah. that uh, will will give you a certain. Um, uh, I mean, I don't want to be like simple-minded, but I think that we're here uh, to be really happy. We're not here to like just suffer. Uh, we're here to be happy. And so we're to... conquering free will and the meaning of life. <laughs> That's <what I'm> oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, this is. I, I think this book is so full of those kinds of of um, uh, daring ways of like asking questions. That it really, it really, really made me happy to read it. And, and also, I mean, somewhat unhappy because I didn't understand a lot of it, <laughs> I have to say. But um, it, it's like, it, it's really, really, 
gorgeous when you watch somebody kind of going, and then, or that, or that, mm-hmm. or that. You know, it's like just it's a very mm-hmm. free, freeing experience to read the book. Well, I think that's sort of the industry also of that particular subject, you know, asking about the origin of the universe or, or, or cosmology, the evolution of the universe. Um, there's sort of an inside joke that we're free of observational constraints. <laughs> we're yeah. free of facts you know, forcing us into a position. So there is, which isn't completely true, it's been an era of really successful observational astronomy. You know, observational astronomers would kill me if I, if I said something like that. But they, you know, great discoveries and really showing us where, where we have to kind of buckle down and, and stick to it. But, but there is this huge question of how the universe began and whether it was the first time the Big Bang ever happened or if we're just part of a series of Big Bangs, if there are other universes out there literally and you know, kind of ginger root sense connected to us mm-hmm. through the past. And, and, and these are all things that, that we can talk about as long as they're realistically or mathematically consistent and wonder if any of them are true. And, mm-hmm. and, and it might be questions you know, we can actually answer in our lifetime, which is quite remarkable. I mean, could we answer the question of how the universe began, or is the universe infinite or finite? Are there extra dimensions? And um, and the idea that you know, Flatland was this great satire and this this beautiful um, kind of novelette, I, I get novella about it. But um, but that we are in some sense might be Flatlanders in a higher dimensional mm-hmm. world, and, and that that we could even learn this is you know, it's it's. It's pretty, it makes you feel connected to the universe in a deeper way, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, mm-hmm. It makes you feel connected to the whole cycle of it all from beginning to this end and maybe even projecting about what our fate will be as it unfolds. I mean, you say you talk about the process of evolution and where we stand in the scheme of things and yet well, we might be unsuccessful as a species. I mean, we don't have a great track record. The dinosaurs, you know, 250 million years those beasts roamed the earth, and, you know, they were solid. We're nowhere near 250 million years, right? We, well, one of, one of the things that, that I find kind of upbeat mm-hmm. on the, is, is it think, plans that, you know, like some of these, these kind of mythical uh, think tank things at NASA that have these very, very long timelines, which is one is a 10,000-year timeline for the greening right. of Mars. Um, so <laughs> that we're going to be going somewhere, and Mars is probably, for one reason or another, Mars is a very good candidate. So it's mm-hmm. about, you know, terraforming Mars. So there'll be stuff for us when we get there. You know, now that we know so much about taking care of planets, <laughs> we're going to take care of Mars. Um, so, you know, when we go somewhere, I just hope a lot of of people get in on that decision about what kind of other worlds we're going to be making and not just the technocrats, you know, mm-hmm. so that uh, everybody gets a, a chance to make another world, you know, because we will be making other worlds, most likely, yeah. And what would that be like? What do we like about this one that we'd want to take to another one, you know, and... What's worth it that we've learned that could be um, applied there, you know, other than our just workaholic ethic and all of this kind of stuff? Do we want to, is that what we want to bring there? So that was a big program while you were at NASA that they were still they were talking about the Mars. They were yeah, the greening of Mars is mm-hmm. a, is it actually there's a timeline and it's ten thousand years long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> ten thousand years. Yeah, it's you know and uh, uh, it's. Why not? Yeah. So you were asking me about you know folding in personal into yeah. the novels, and and uh, and I wanted to ask you also um, about 
how you draw from so many different things. I mean, you're a musician and a writer and a visual artist. And, um, and in drawing on all these things, I mean, when you're choosing your medium and you're thinking about, even in response to NASA, to choose the poem, you know, to choose the poem and not the multimedia exercise, I mean, how does that play out for you, cho choosing between all of those different skill sets that you have, you know, all those abilities that you have? I mean, how do you hone in and decide on the poem? Uh, just, you know, just uh, chance. <laughs> uh, um, no, just, you know, I, what's, the, what's the answer? I mean, I don't uh, have a big plan. A lot of times I've made, when I've made big, big plans, I, uh, I've been very disappointed. You know, it's mm -hmm. just you, you have these expectations and then, they, then you have to kind of move yourself into the, that thing and then, and then you have to sort of look for what you what you think you might see. So it, it becomes claustrophobic. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, in trying to make, maintain this balance between looking and discovering and wanting and desiring, it's, 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 it's a, you know, it's a tricky mm -hmm. thing. So, uh, you know, I've had the experience sometimes of starting out to write an opera and ending mm -hmm. up with like a, a potato print, you know, <laughs> and and then I'm just kind of trying to be happy with that because, uh, you know, there's there's uh, uh, it, it's okay except for the people who like paid for the opera, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> we thought this was gonna be this is it, okay. Yeah, so, um, the curses of of being a multimedia artist are, are you know they are they are like that. Sometimes I wish that I was just hey, you know like. Luthier sounds nice. Yeah, I know. It really does. Yeah, just go into your back room. One beautiful craft, one beautiful sound, mm -hmm. you know. Well, um, there's something interesting to me about it in terms of the idea of being constrained and mm -hmm. and being constrained creativity. The mm -hmm. idea that you, you have to be very clear on the choices you make. You don't just go up there and draw on everything, you know, just because you can, <laughs> just because you're able to. That that. You, you, you choose the potato print or the opera or whatever it is, there's a lot of constraints involved in being creative in that way. And I think that that was something that before I was embroiled in, in something like math or physics, I didn't fully appreciate how effective that is on both sides, you know, as for, for arts as well as for science. And there's something about that that's kind of thrilling. As a scientist, the, the, the rigidity of the constraints, you know, working within the mathematics can defeat you completely and, and being forced to respect that and yet still finding big shapes, you know, big ways of solving things that, you know, no one did before or, or, um, or drawing on ideas that just hadn't crossed people's minds that get you from A to B, like right there and as opposed to the long way around. And, and, and that kind of beautiful aspect of creativity under extreme constraint is something that I think is kind of underappreciated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I'm sort of surprised you say that because you know you're. Th this really is pretty daring. The universe is finite. I mean, that's like <laughs> there are very few things that you could say that would be more like oh, really oh, prove it or something. You know, I don't know um, what you'd say to that. But except that that I really admire it. Mm -hmm. That just to say, well, let's if it were like that, what would that yeah. be like? So, um, and I so you're you're. The, the constraints as a, as a structure to work within, mm -hmm. um, it just depends on, on on how big that box is. I think is is this uh, this is not um, you're you're certainly citing a lot of people who um, mm -hmm. let's say let's call them authorities for a second, mm -hmm. and and appreciating your work. But this is um, 
not a work that that is about uh, constraint or or uh, you know it's uh, it's very authoritative, you know, and and daring. So um, anyway, also your comment on the constraints it yeah. doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> well, in a sense. You know, I'm working within a lot of constraints, mathematically even, mm -hmm. just uh, and and uh, working within those confines mm -hmm. and trying to find uh, ways of visualizing or imagining that the universe can be, but still it. But mathematics to that. doesn't say that the universe is fine. No, it doesn't. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there so are. It's your speculation. Sure. Absolutely. That. And yeah. and even now. It's hard to, the universe is clearly very, very big. <laughs> um, it's at least hundreds of millions of light years across and probably billions of light years across. So even if it is finite, I mean, it's big, right? And it, it would take light from our own Milky Way billions of years to come back to us and, and see it again. Um, but, um, but you know, the lucky thing is in the past, the universe was smaller. <laughs> So light could cross around in some sense when, depending on how the universe evolved. But it might be so big that we never actually see all the way around the universe. And, and that, like I said, was one of the motivations for writing the book because you just don't want these ideas just to evaporate. But more and more people talk about this idea of extra dimensions. It sounds really crazy and science fiction-y, but, but it, it's, it's a very interesting possibility. And when you ask about making creative leaps, and that's, that's one of the things that's really fun to imagine playing with because things our consequences come from that that you couldn't possibly foresee. For instance, light itself looks to us like a phenomena that we understand. There's this beam of light coming at me from the wall, and I think I understand it. But if the universe has extra dimensions, I, you can prove that you might mistake something going on spatially in that extra dimension for something that we call light, that, that these extra dimensions can camouflage themselves in some sense as particles or, um, or as light itself. And so the whole structure of the world as we understand it, why are there electrons, why is there light, why is there matter, why is there energy, could find some deeper unifying understanding if we just brought in a few extra spatial dimensions <laughs> for the one low price of some extra spatial dimensions. Yeah. And obviously I'm, I'm talking about a projected aim because if it was all solved, you'd be reading about it you know, in the paper, but um, it's not a completely solved idea, and, and people have been working on it for 100 years, and something I'm just starting to get into working on, but where you're, you, you, you can make really beautiful uh, creative leaps there, where you really, you just see something that even after 80 years, somebody didn't see, and, um, and yet to really try to make it so that it would be confirmed one day, like you could show that it was real. I mean, that would be the real clincher for me. And I think that's, that's again, one of those things that really attracted me to science, one, that it, it, it didn't care what I believed one way or another, which in a way was kind of exciting, um, that nature didn't care what I believed, and, and um, that it was transcendent, that everyone was forced to agree on it. And, and that one day you might have an idea that turns out to be true. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support science and the city today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we're running here at Science in the City. 
Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.